College football season is back, and Walters is the place to be in D.C., be it the SEC, the ACC, the Big Ten, or whatever the heck we're calling the Big 12 right now. The 30-plus televisions at Walters have you covered. Make your reservations over at waltersdc.com slash reservations now. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Here's the one-two pitch. Slider cracked in the air to deep right field. Soto racing back at the wall, looking up, and it's gone. Javi Baez, an opposite field home run, is 28th, and the Mets lead 6-3. Gray allows his second solo homer. Soto will be looking for a pitch here that can, can drive behind in the count. I mean, Walker can't afford to walk him. Normally you pitch around it, but there's no place to put him. Now the pitch. Soto swings, hits it hard up the middle of base, and into right center field. Thomas has scored, rounding third, and coming home, the other run, Hernandez, they both score, and over to third on the play, with yet another big hit. It's now a one-run game, it's the Mets six and the Nationals five. Both peering in, series of signs, has them from Adams. Here's the pitch, swing, and a long drive to left center field. Way back, going, going, gone, goodbye. A grand slam home run for Kevin Pillar. His fourth home run in the last seven games he's played in against the Nationals. Six runs home in the inning. It's now the Mets 13 of the Nationals 6. And welcome to Nat Chat for Monday, September 6, 2021, along with Nats insider Mark Zuckerman of BassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Happy Labor Day to everyone. Hope you're enjoying your day off, if in fact you have the day off. If you are working, if you are laboring on Labor Day, we salute you. Patrick Corbin is pitching later today, so we may all be laboring. But anyway, Nationals as a whole continue to labor in this five-game series with the New York Mets at Nationals Park. Another loss for the Nats on Sunday afternoon. But this series, which already is super lengthy, feels like it's been going on for about six months with everything that has happened. Each game has been so eventful, and the game on Sunday afternoon ends up being another eventful game, a 13-6 loss that does drop the Nats to 56-80. and on the season, but the Nats again rallied, this time early in the game. Nats overcoming a 4 nothing first inning deficit. The Nats in their three losses in this series, 6-2 and 10 innings on Friday night. Nats in that game overcame a 2 nothing ninth inning deficit. The 11-9, nine inning loss on Saturday afternoon in game one of the doubleheader. Nats overcame a 9 nothing fourth inning deficit. And now in this 13-6 loss on Sunday afternoon, the Nats overcome a 4 nothing first inning deficit. No lead is safe with the Nationals, Mark, but unfortunately, most of these games do end up resulting in Nationals losses these days. 
I sense a repeating pattern here, Al. Have you picked up on it? <laughs> yes, very much so. <laughs> it feels like we're watching the same game over and over, and it really goes back a ways. I mean, they've now lost eight out of 10 to the Mets in less than a month, going back to mid-August. And a lot of these games have just been the same story over and over. And you give them some credit for the battling part. It's clear they're doing it. Hey, they're scoring runs. They're consistently scoring five, six, even more runs than that. And they are not able to make those hold up and be enough. And it starts with the starting pitching not being good enough. And then it concludes with the bullpen not being good enough. And like we've talked so often, you know, they'll get two of their relievers on a given night can look great. But as soon as the third one falls apart, that's the game right there. And that was the story once again in this one. I mean, two innings define this game. It's the top of the first when Josiah Gray gives up four runs by failing to retire any of the first five batters he faces. And then the top of the ninth when Austin Voth fails to retire any of the six batters he faces, all six of them scoring. His first pitch of the inning is a home run and his last pitch of the inning is a grand slam. You can't do this, obviously, but you take those two innings out and it's a fairly competitive ball game. And the problem is they are way too often letting innings just spiral out of control. They are not finding a way to stop the damage and prevent opponents from piling up big numbers. And that is a significant problem. And that is something that these guys have to learn how to do is when things aren't going well, how to fight your way through it and prevent it from just completely blowing up on you. The Nationals are not a good team. We need to make that crystal clear. The Nats have the third worst record in the National League at, again, 56-80. and 80. The Nats have, by miles, the worst run differential in the National League East at minus 79 now on the year. It is, though, interesting. You mentioned the Nats scoring runs. I would argue the Nats offense has been better since the sell-off, which sounds bizarre. And yet, I think if you actually look at the games, it's the truth. The Nats actually entered games on Sunday 12th in the majors in team-weighted runs created plus at plus 100 on the season. The Nats conceivably could end the season with a top 10 offense in baseball, which is just a stunning thing to say, A, because of the sell-off, B, because of all the run scoring issues earlier in the season. But at the end of this season, the offense isn't really going to be the thing. It's going to be the pitching, the collapse of the rotation, and to a lesser extent, the unreliability of the bullpen. But I do think that that is something that kind of can sneak by us. Their offense isn't bad. They're actually hitting and scoring runs here. Yeah. And I think what has happened is you've got Juan Soto is peak Juan Soto right now. You know, all the concerns about him earlier on mostly disappeared. And he's doing this despite not being pitched to very much. So there's that. Josh Bell, all the early season concerns are gone. He is becoming a reliable middle of the order protection for Soto. He's not perfect. No, but he's been consistently effective and coming through in a lot of spots for them. So there's that. And you have two guys at the top of the lineup now. Can't say we saw this coming, but Lane Thomas and Alcides Escobar are, again, getting the job done when given the opportunity. And it's actually creating some depth to this lineup and giving them at least the top half of the lineup has become pretty competitive. And that's how they're doing this. So yeah, they are scoring runs. The offense, while far from an elite offense, is not really the problem right now. And it really hasn't been the problem most of the season. It is the pitching. And it really is the starting pitching. We've talked about this. When you can't get your starters to give you six innings on any kind of consistent basis, it just sets everything else up to fail. And that's what we're having here. And even the one guy who we were excited about, who had looked so good, the one out of the five who we were excited to see pitch when he takes the mound, Josiah Gray, this is now back-to-back really bad outings. And this one was pretty ugly. This was troubling. 
Now, it doesn't mean that's who he's going to become, that this is evidence of the pitcher that he is. But at least on this day, that was a really bad start from Josiah Gray. So days on which Josiah Gray pitches are now known as Gray Days. Uh, The Nationals' Twitter handle is using that as a mantra. Sunday was literally a Gray Day. It was kind of cloudy outside for at least a decent part of the day. And it ended up being a Gray Day, figuratively and literally, with Josiah Gray pitching. He does not pitch well. This 13-6 loss, he allows six runs in three innings. He gives up seven hits, two homers, two doubles, and three singles. Issues a walk, has just two strikeouts, throws 49 strikes, versus 33 balls on 82 pitches. And this is, as Mark just said, a second consecutive bad outing. This is now a bit of a trend here. It was coming off what happened in the 7-4 loss to Philadelphia at Nationals Park on Monday night. Six runs in four innings in that game. Gray in this game on Sunday, four runs in the top of the first. I mean, geez, uh, you talk about a bad way to start an afternoon. Gives up the four runs on a double, three singles, a walk, and an RBI sack fly. Then come the homers. Gray giving up a run in the top of the second on a one-out full-count solo homer by Jonathan Villar. Gray in the top of the third giving up a leadoff homer to Javier Baez on a one-two pitch. You know, giving up home runs is cute and funny when they're solo shots. And, you know, these two home runs were solo shots. But he's got to get his arms around this home run problem because you can't dictate what your home runs end up being. Like the Max Scherzer thing of giving up just solo homers, that's a Max Scherzer thing because he's excellent in every other regard and he doesn't put people on base. And so by definition, his homers aren't going to be two, three, four run shots. Gray's not at that point yet. The guy's given up 15 homers in 43 major league innings. That's a lot. I mean, that's a frightening home run rate. That's more than three home runs allowed per nine innings. And, you know, I think, like you said, nobody's going to panic off back-to-back bad starts. But Josiah Gray, first five starts with the Nats, ERA at 289. Josiah Gray, each of his last two starts with the Nats, six runs allowed. You know, this is not trending in the direction that we want. And we got to make sure, what you would hate to see is for him to end his season not pitching well. You want this as sort of an upbeat thing going into the offseason with, and uh, hopefully we get there. But right now, he's in a bit of a problem area. So, all right, let's start with the micro, which is this game itself. And then we'll get to the macro, the big picture with him. What he was doing in this game, it was pretty clear he was missing to the same location, especially in the first inning. Pitchers called arm side, which is, uh, you know, for a right-hander, meaning to the right side. If he's facing a left-handed hitter, he's missing outside the zone and was missing well outside the zone and missing not only with his fastball over there, but with his breaking balls as well. It was everything was in that same location. And so he's falling behind. He's not throwing pitches that are truly that are that competitive. These are pitches that start out as balls and they stay as balls. That's not going to work. And so what he wasn't able to then do is come inside on them, throw that hammer of a curveball that he has at the knees that drops down and get him to swing at it. He just was missing. And now that, by all accounts, that's a mechanics thing. That's a your shoulders flying open, your arm is dropping down, and that's causing that kind of run on your pitches. So in theory, that's an easy fix if they can just kind of figure out what's causing that and get him to sort of feel what that is in a bullpen session. So I'll be really interested the next time out to see if he can get that. But that to me was the whole thing with this start was consistently missing away, away, away to lefties and never able to quite figure that out. He got a little better towards the end, but I mean, you throw 82 pitches in three innings, that's not a whole lot of opportunity to try to figure it out and get it right. So that's the micro. Let's talk macro though. The big picture here is in seven starts for the Nationals, he now has a 5-4-0 ERA and a 1.4 whip. Those are not good stats, obviously. Now you can break that down into the five good ones to start out and then the two bad ones since, and I think it's important to separate the good from the bad here. And it's really, we're just talking about a couple bad ones. But 
I had lots of people during the game tweeting at me about how disappointed they are and thinking that this is evidence that maybe he's not nearly as good as we all think he is or that they're touting him to be. And maybe they're hearing from other places that this guy isn't actually a legitimate top pitching prospect. I don't know what he's going to end up being. It's far too soon to say that. But here's what I will say. And I looked it up because I kind of remembered this being the same thing. And I had no idea it was going to be this similar. Jordan Zimmerman's first seven starts for the Nationals, way back in 2009, he had a 5.71 ERA and a 1.415 whip, almost identical to Josiah Gray. And Jordan now, he wound up having Tommy John later that year, and we certainly hope that Josiah does not follow that same path. But he wound up having Tommy John that year, came back at the end of 2010 and, and still struggled. It wasn't until 2011 that Jordan took off and became the pitcher that he was, which was a very, very good and reliable pitcher for them for a long time. So my point is not to say that Josiah Gray is going to be Jordan Zimmerman, even though we've made some comparisons there. People see some comparisons. But just to say it's seven starts. If anybody says they truly know what this guy is yet, you're jumping the gun. There really is no way to know what he is. There's been some good things. There's been some bad things. There's going to be eventually a body of work for us to truly evaluate what he is and start to figure that out. Yeah, it would be moronic to overreact to two bad starts, just like it would have been moronic to overreact to the five good starts. All you can do is judge, you know, outing by outing what you're seeing, what you're thinking, but you by no means are arriving at definitive conclusions. What I think is just troubling and just doesn't offer reason for optimism with any of these guys right now is what we talked about in the last installment of the podcast. The Nats' recent track record for developing guys and improving guys is abysmal. And so if you're a Nats fan and you're seeing him go from five good starts to two bad starts, and now you're more worried about Josiah Gray than you were a few weeks ago, I get it. I mean, intellectually, it's kind of ridiculous to let two bad starts make you go, oh, you know, the world, the sky is falling with this guy. But their track record with this stuff isn't very good. And so until proven otherwise, I think it's going to be fair to wonder if, in fact, the Nats are going to develop this guy, cultivate this guy the way he needs to be developed and cultivated. But no doubt, I mean, we've talked about this. Many starting pitchers take a while to get good. And so, you know, as much as we want to go into the offseason with Josiah Gray killing it, it may well be a year from now. We still don't know exactly what Josiah Gray is. Now, you don't want to get into that Eric Fetty territory when seven years from now, you still don't know what the guy is. But, you know, if it happens to be that it takes a year for this guy to blossom, maybe even two years. I mean, nobody wants that, but that may well be the case. Unfortunately, that's how it goes for some of these guys. I I think the most important thing is he's healthy, he's making these starts, and hopefully he continues to make these starts and learn from these starts. And to your point, get better from these starts. If this is a mechanical issue, let's see the mechanics be better in the next outing and not still be an issue come, say, late September. Yes. And this is where Jim Hickey comes in as the pitching coach. I get a lot of questions about that aspect of all this. Absolutely. It's his job now to help Josiah figure out what he's doing wrong and help correct it and be better the next time out. That's what a pitching coach does. And so, especially with so many young pitchers and young catchers, let's point that out too. It's a really tough spot for these young pitchers to be learning while working with two rookie catchers, Ruiz and Adams. I know Avila is still here and he's helping out, but it's not the same. You know, Jan Gomes and Kurt Suzuki, when they're back here, they can do a lot to help you out. When it's young guys, you're sort of on your own a little bit. And so that's where, again, the coaching staff does come into play. And yes, I think that is important for them to learn. What I'll just say, though, is this. Those two starts that he had against the Braves, including the one where he struck out 10 in five innings, I find it hard to believe that's a mirage. You know, there's something there, obviously. 
when he's on, he has the ability to miss bats, especially with his breaking ball. Now, teams are starting to figure him out a little bit. He admitted, Riley Adams admitted, that teams start to get a book and maybe they're making some adjustments. So now it's up to them to make the counter adjustment to that. This is all part of the process of becoming a big leaguer. So there are some really important starts for him coming up. And I agree that it would be really nice to come out of this and say, okay, there's some encouraging stuff to go off of into the offseason. You do not want to have peaked five starts in and then tailspin the rest of the way. But I think there's going to be some opportunities and some opportunities, let's be honest, against some lesser lineups. I think his next start is going to be against the Pirates. That can make a big difference for him. Oh, yes, it can. I want to get to the Nats bullpen in a moment, but you just mentioned the catching. Riley Adams was the Nats starting catcher on Sunday for a third time in four games in this series. Uh, We know that things did not go swimmingly between Josiah Gray and Kbert Ruiz in Josiah's previous start, which is kind of funny because these two guys were together in the Dodgers organization. But what do you think about that? That, I mean, Kbert Ruiz has only started one game so far in this series. He's not done well hitting. I mean, it's such a small sample. But that's kind of surprising, isn't it, that we're not seeing Ruiz as the every-game catcher as we thought would be the case? Well, he was scheduled to start this game. And if you remember, he fouled a ball off his knee on Saturday and was banged up a little bit and was still sore from it, and that's why he didn't start. So they're going to see how he's doing on Monday. Again, the plan would be for him. So my sense was that the plan going into the weekend was that Ruiz was going to catch the three-day games, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and Adams was going to catch the two night games, Friday and Saturday. But after what happened to Ruiz on Saturday, they decided to bring Adams back. Now, if Ruiz isn't ready to go on Monday, we may see Alex Avila because you can't run Adams into the ground. That's a lot of work. This has been a a rough stretch, obviously, all these games, a doubleheader, no off days and all that. They may need Alex Avila before it's all said and done. But the hope would be that Ruiz's knee is feeling better and that he's good to go on Monday. Okay, so there's nothing performance related. This was the plan was for Ruiz to start Sunday. That's what we were told. And, And if you go back and look at it, I mean, he was hobbling after that foul ball. I do buy that, that there was something wrong with him, yeah. Nats Chat is sponsored by Silver Brands Brewing Company, located in downtown Silver Spring, only a one-minute walk from the Silver Spring Metro Station. Silver Branch is a perfect jumping-off point to Metro down to the game. Park at the Cameron Street parking lot and meet up with friends for a beer and a bite to eat before Metroing down. You can also get Silver Branch beer at Nationals Park. Beyond the Gnome World, one of Silver Branch's four flagship beers is available at District Drafts at Section 223. Brewed to be light and refreshing, Beyond the Gnome World won a gold medal for the Saison beer style at the Great American Beer Festival last year. Beyond the Gnome World is deliciously dry and thirst-quenching and the perfect beer for hot summertime ball games. You may not be familiar with Saison, but take our word for it, baseball season is the perfect season for Saison, and buying from District Drafts to support your local breweries is a gnome run. Go to Section 223 and try Beyond the Gnome World the next time that you're at Nats Park, and make sure you stop by Silver Branch, located in Metro Plaza, just steps from the Silver Spring Metro. Silver Branch Brewing Company, when you come in, let them know that the Nats Chat Podcast sent you. Hey, Nats fans, this is Eric Bramer, play-by-play broadcaster for the Fredericksburg Nationals. Time is running out to see the Fred Nats in their inaugural 2021 season at beautiful new Fred Nats Ballpark. With promotions every night of the week and a talented roster that includes Jackson Rutledge, Jeremy De La Rosa, Brandon Bossier, Yordi Barley, and many more, the time's never been better to see tomorrow's Washington National stars today. Visit FredNats.com for ticket information and follow us on social media at FXBGNats for the latest updates. 
We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Baldonado checks the runners as he comes set third base side of the slab. The kick and the pitch. Swing and a miss. Struck him out with a slider for the second out of the inning. All right, so the Nationals bullpen, we've had this formula recently, and it happened to get on Sunday, where Davey, of course, has to use a bunch of different relievers, and inevitably, they don't all have it. What is remarkable about Sunday afternoon's bullpen performance is that a number of the bullpen guys pitch well, actually really well, and it felt for a while like the story of this game might end up being the outstanding performance by Nationals relievers, but such ends up not being the case. So six relievers get used by Davey. Four were really good. Two, though, were not. Patrick Murphy was good. Two scoreless innings, two strikeouts. Mason Thompson was good. Two scoreless innings. Andres Machado struggled in what ended up being a Mets one-run eighth. He faced four batters, reported just one out, gave up three consecutive singles, and an RBI sack fly. Our guy Alberto Baldonado was really good. He came into the game top of the eighth, runners on first and second, one out, Nats down 7-6, and he gets out of the jam, faces two batters, gets two outs, including striking out pinch hitter Luis Guillorme on five pitches. Then comes Austin Voth, and Voth ends up being a complete disaster in a six-run Mets ninth. We have seen some bad bullpen outings this year in terms of like individual reliever performances. This is up there among the worst. I mean, I don't know who has the crown for that title of worst bullpen outing by a Nats reliever in 2021, but this one's up there. Austin Voth allows six runs on five hits and a walk, gets nobody out. He gives up two homers, first pitch leadoff homer to Francisco Lindor, and a grand slam to Kevin Pillar. That's now 13 grand slams allowed by the Nats this year. That is one shy of the major league record for most grand slams given up by a team in the season. The 1996 Detroit Tigers allowed 14 grand slams that year. This is a second consecutive bad outing for Austin Both. He, in that 6-2 10 inning loss to the Mets on Friday night, gave up four runs, three earned in the top of the 10th inning. It was kind of funny to me that Wander Suero relieves both, and Suero looks great. Like, with the game just completely out of hand, when you don't need him to pitch well, Suero comes in and his lights out. So, like, okay, good for him, fine. But, uh, you know, Machado didn't look good, but that paled in comparison to both. That was tough to watch. It's another bad outing for both. This is another one of these younger Nats arms who has gotten seemingly worse over time, not better. And uh, the Mets end up getting to the Nats bullpen in the later innings of a game once again in this series. I can make the case, Al, that this was not only the worst relief pitching appearance of this season, but 
one of the worst in Nationals history. Let's be honest here. Six batters, all six reached, two of them homered. They all scored, two of them homered. Like I said, the first pitch he threw was a home run. The last pitch he threw was a grand slam. And what was a competitive game, 7-6, if you can somehow keep it there and the Nats are going to have the top of their lineup coming up in the bottom of the ninth against a Mets bullpen that we have seen they can rally against, and you turn that from 7-6 into 13-6 without getting an out recorded, that's on my short list of worst in Nationals history. It just is. I'm sorry. It was awful. He had nothing. They were hammering everything that he threw up there. Now, This goes back to the point I was making earlier, too, about how so often this year we have seen pitchers on this team that it's clear they don't have it early on and they cannot find a way to get through it. They either have it or they don't, and there's no in-between. And that is something they absolutely have to figure out. You know, Suero, you just mentioned, he's the prime example of it. There's good Suero and bad Suero, and there's no in-between. Surprisingly, he was good swearer today, even though it didn't matter in the end because the game was out of hand at that point. But Austin Voth, you have to, once you give up a first pitch homer and then a double, you've got to find a way to figure something out at that point. And I can't fault Davey for leaving him in as long as he did. These guys have been pitching so much. I mean, Finnegan was not available in this game. He pitched both ends of the doubleheader on Saturday. Ryan Harper, I think, had pitched four out of five days. You can't go to him. This is the domino effect of the starters only giving you three, four, five innings tops is that you have to burn up so many relievers. And so even on a day where, I mean, they had to use two relievers for two innings apiece and they still find themselves at the end having to leave a guy out there to wear it when it clearly wasn't going his way. They've got to find a way to eliminate these blow up innings and blow up outings and learn how when you don't have your best stuff, how to still get out. That is a huge problem. Yeah. Here's the thing. I don't think they're learning that because I'm not sure they're capable of that. I just don't think these guys are very good. I think these guys are what they are. And I don't know how realistic this is. I think the Nats need an infusion of new arms this offseason. I I don't know how doable that's going to be. But I'm getting a little sick and tired of watching these same guys every year go out there and be what they are. And it's like, this is what they are. They're not getting better. God help us next spring training. If we're doing the Eric Fetty versus Joe Ross versus Austin Voth thing again, okay? Can we please stop with that for like the 18th consecutive year next spring training, okay? Can we please move on from that? Can we graduate from that somehow? You know, I was thinking about it, Mark. It was not that long ago we had a conversation of, wow, Fetty, Ross, and Voth, these three guys have been battling for years. They all look like they're having good seasons. You know, Fetty's finding himself, and Ross is finding himself, and Voth is becoming a high-leverage reliever. And all three guys have completely fallen apart as this year has gone on. Ross, you know, we'll see what happens with him from a health standpoint. But Fetty's a wreck. Both can't get anybody out right now. At some point, it's like these guys, they are what they are. And you've got to be able to move on from them. And like I said, I don't know that they can because they lack pitching depth big time, as we all know. But I don't know that there's a fix for some of these guys. I think this is kind of what they are. Like, I don't know how much more we need to see of Austin Voth, you know, to see of Wander Suero to be like, well, maybe this, maybe that. It's like, no, this is just what he is. You know, he's just an arm He's not very good, and you can't really count on the guy. Yeah, well, look, the thing that's going to come into play next year is that pretty much all these guys are going to be out of options. So they either all have to make the team or they have to cut bait. And in some cases, they may even be arbitration eligible this winter, and those are the candidates to be non-tendered come the offseason. So I would be surprised if they're all back all of that, from that group that you just mentioned. I think in a lot of those cases, they have seen everything they need to see. And even if there aren't a whole lot of you know better options within the system right now, at some point, you say, we've seen what there is to see. We have no leverage anymore because they can't be sent down. 
and uh, their salaries start to go up as well through the arbitration process. So I would not be surprised if at least one or two of those guys are not back next year. Give me more of Murphy and Baldonado, huh? They're looking pretty good right now. Oh, Baldy, that was a tight spot he was brought into. And he is now retired. He's faced 12 hitters now in the big leagues. He's retired 11 of them and struck out five. And like you said, these are some high leverage spots that he's all of a sudden been in. Faced some big time hitters with runners on base. We like what we've seen. I have no idea if this is who he actually is, but I've seen enough to know that I want to see more. Well, another guy who falls into that category, in fact, he may be the leader of that category in terms of we have no idea if this is real, but we want to see more, is Lane Thomas. And Lane Thomas, who had not hit a leadoff home run in his career prior to last night's game two, has done it again. I mean, what a game that Lane Thomas ends up having on Sunday afternoon. He keeps producing. We keep saying, well, I don't know if this is really who he is and can he keep this going? Well, he keeps it going and the sample size keeps growing. and. You know, I don't know if this is Lane Thomas's best game so far because there's actually a lot to choose from, but this is certainly up there with what he ended up doing in this 13-6 loss on Sunday afternoon. Two for five with a homer and a single. And he made multiple standout defensive plays. So first of all, another leadoff homer to begin a Nationals offensive outing. Uh, Thomas in a Nationals three-run first, a leadoff homer to left field of Mets starter Taiwan Walker on a 1-2 pitch. Remember, he began the second game of the doubleheader on Saturday a uh, homer in a two-run first to center field on another one-two pitch off Mets starter Tyler McGill in that game. So for a second straight game, Thomas has a leadoff homer in the first on a one-two pitch. Then later in the game on Sunday, Thomas in the Nats three-run fifth, a one-out first pitch single. And you had the two defensive plays. Thomas an outfield assist for the final out in the top of the fifth. Now the pitch, swing a ground ball toward the middle. Escobar to his left, can't get it on through to center of base hit. Rowdy second, heading for third. Baez the throw there, the tag by Keeboom. He is out at third base to retire the side. Lane Thomas. As uh, Thomas on a Jeff McNeil two-out single throughout Javier Baez at third base. Baez committing a cardinal sin, right? You don't make the final out at third base. yet. That's exactly what old Javi did. Thumbs down on that one, Javi. And then Thomas, a terrific sliding forward backhanded catch in shallow center field on Patrick Mazika's bases loaded go-ahead RBI sack fly in the top of the eighth. The kick and the pitch. Swing and a line drive left center field. Coming on as Thomas into a slide. Makes the catch. Pops to his feet. Runner tagging. Throw will be cut off by the shortstop Escobar behind the pitcher's mound. It's a line drive into center field. A sliding catch by Thomas for a 7-6 Mets lead. I know the Nats ended up losing 13-6, so it ends up not seeming to be of that much consequence. But in a one-run game in that moment, that's a huge play with the bases juiced to make that catch, prevent a hit, maybe even an extra bases hit. Really good stuff offensively and defensively, again, from Lane Thomas. Yeah, so I'll, I'll say this is probably his best all-around individual game. Yeah. Because he did it in a lot of different ways. You saw what he can do with power in the field with his glove and with his arm and a single uh, otherwise in the game. So more and more, you know, eventually there's going to be a body of work that you say, okay, this is becoming legitimate. And, you know, we're not there yet, but so far you cannot find hardly anything to find fault with him. He has been such a revelation and has made such a difference for them to the extent that Victor Robles is an afterthought now. Although, I don't know if people saw this, Robles homered in Rochester. It was a pitch like up at his eyeballs and he still hit it out of the park. 2-2 pitch, swung on, and that's hit high in the air to deep left field. Meassa's going back to the warning track to the wall, and there's another homer off Kyle Hart. Victor Robles hits his first long ball in a Wings uniform, 
And the Red Wings have tied this thing early at a run apiece. Good for him. The overall numbers there have not been great, but, you know, he's playing hard and trying to get some things done there. But it almost isn't going to matter what he does because if Thomas keeps doing this, the job is his and they're not giving it away to anybody else anytime soon. So it's just impressive. It's impressive. And it's it's one of these that just came out of nowhere. And that's why, you know, you just don't know what to expect. I mean, he wasn't a, a zero for the Cardinals. Maybe in the big leagues, it wasn't happening for him. But there was a point that he was highly thought of in that organization and then got bypassed by others, didn't take advantage of his opportunities. So, you know, the Nats probably bought low on him which is what you have to do when you're selling John Lester. But maybe there is still something there, and and maybe he is actually going to turn out to be a lot more than anybody could have possibly imagined when they made that trade. 77 plate appearances for Lane Thomas with the Nationals. Batting average of 328, on-base percentage of 403, slugging percentage of 567. Here's the question. We won't know at the end of the season what he truly is, but do you think it's possible that he's good enough to where the Nationals say, at least internally, maybe not publicly, all right, This is our starting center fielder for the 2022 season, and the Nats don't really do anything at the center field spot this offseason, or even maybe necessarily in terms of the leadoff spot in the batting order. The Nats are comfortable going into the offseason, going into next season, with Lane Thomas as the every-game center fielder and every-game leadoff batter. Yeah, I think that's entirely possible if he does what you just described and keeps us up through the rest of the season, because they have so many other areas that they need to address. That, you know, they're not going to be able to address them all, certainly on a team that's not, we don't believe is going to go spend big and and trying to go all in on winning next year. So if you don't know who your shortstop is, you don't know who your left fielder is, we still don't really know what they have at second base or third base at this point. So, you know, and we haven't gotten to the pitching staff yet. So, yeah, if all that's true, of course, if you have Lane Thomas that does what he's doing and will have done it for about two months, you say, okay, let's put him back out there next year. He's our guy. No, he may not be our starting center fielder and leadoff hitter in 2023 or 2024, but for 22, given the other needs that we have to address, like, yeah, let's keep him. Let's put him out there and we'll, we'll try to take care of those other positions for now because, you know, there is no long-term answer in left field. They don't have it. There is no long-term answer at shortstop. Escobar's done a very nice job and he may be back, but he's not the long-term answer. We know that. And Luis Garcia and Carter Keboom remain huge question marks. We don't really have any clue yet whether they are going to be part of this or not. So, yeah, if Lane Thomas, you want to say he's your guy for another year, absolutely do that and go try to figure out the other positions. Another productive game for the best hitter on the planet, Juan Soto on Sunday. Bottom of the third, a two-out six-pitch walk in that Nats three-run fifth. A one-out bases loaded two-run single that cut the Nats deficit to 6-5. Another game in which he gets on base multiple times. His major league leading on base percentage up to 446. His major league leading walks total up to 111. You mentioned Josh Bell earlier. He continues to produce. Big home run for Bell on Sunday in that three-run first, a one-out first pitch, two-run shot to center field of Mets daughter Taiwan Walker to cut the Nats deficit to 4-3. That homer going a projected 417 feet for Statcast. He also drew two walks in this game, including a walk in the bottom of the fifth on seven pitches, despite having been down to the count at 1.02. So Bell now tied with Juan Soto for the team lead in home runs in terms of active Nats at 24. Kyle Schwarber is still your Nationals home run leader with 25 (laughs) homers on the year with the Nats. But Josh Bell has gotten his OPS for the season up to 800. The OPS is at an even 800 through this game on Sunday. I feel like that's kind of a nice milestone marker for him coming out of that rut that he put himself in in April. We've noted how, man, it's taken a while for those season numbers to really climb. It's been this very slow, you know, tortoise-like march to respectability here. 
But I feel like that's kind of a, a cool thing to be able to say now. He's got an 800 OPS on the year. He's tied among the uh, team leaders in terms of active nationals and home runs. He's having a good season. We've noted this before, but an impressive home run on Sunday. And I'm glad to see that finally the numbers are truly reflecting what this guy, for the most part, has done this season. And that's hit well. Yeah, I was about to say that he finally got the OPS to 800 like we've been uh wondering if he might. And barring a collapse here over the final four weeks of the season, this is going to be his second best offensive season as a big leaguer, only behind the 2019 all-star campaign for the Pirates, in which it really was an all-star first half for him. He was not good in the second half. He had monster numbers in the first half. So in some ways, you might even say that this is a little bit more impressive to have come back from that awful April to end up with the numbers he's going to have. So like you said, tied with Soto with 24 homers. He's only three behind Soto in the RBI category, your favorite category. He's got 76. He's on pace now for a 90 RBI season. And because he's you know had so few early on, like 95 and maybe even 100, as much as these guys are getting on base in front of him, is not out of the question that he could finish that with 26 games to go. So he's going to wind up with you know more than 25 homers, probably at least 90 RBI, an OPS around 800. He is exactly what they thought they were getting and, and better on defense than we thought he'd be. So for all the concerns that they may have, Josh Bell, to me, is not one of them. He is back next year as the starting first baseman. And then they'll decide long-term what the answer is there. But for as many other issues as they have, we were talking before, to me, first base is not an issue for them. It's funny. You look at the three major offseason acquisitions by Mike Rizzo. Josh Bell is a hit. Kyle Schwarber. I think you have to say it was a hit, ultimately, with how he produced for the Nationals. And then Brad Hand, I guess, was more miss than hit, but that you turned him into Riley Adams is kind of a hit now. So I don't know, is Mike Rizzo three for three on those acquisitions? I feel like it's maybe kind of twisted logic, but you can kind of say yes with those three guys. Um, sure. I'll give you the first two, definitely. The third one, <laughs> uh, not quite there, maybe not, but if that all works out, that's great. And again, there are things we can fault Rizzo for and how he constructed the team this year. And there were certainly issues with roster construction. But you're right, the big ticket items, which let's be honest, the storyline going into the season was, did they do enough? Like, were those big enough names? Did they need to go bigger and get a bigger bat? Did they need to do more? And that wasn't really the problem. Now they got to slow starts, yes, but that wasn't the problem. It was more of a depth issue and not having enough positional player depth and the rotation, like you said, just not living up to what it was supposed to be. That's why they're in the position that they're in, not really because the big ticket offseason acquisitions didn't deliver. Yeah, it's a conflicting time right now if you're a Mike Rizzo fan because he's made specific moves that look brilliant, like Lane Thomas, Riley Adams, etc. But there are big picture issues with the organization that ultimately fall on his plate. And you have to say what has happened with this team. To that end, we got an interesting email from Joel Charney. You can always email the podcast, natchatpodcast at gmail.com. Writes Joel, seeing the problems that Josiah Gray had on Sunday and the overall struggles of the Nats' young bullpen arms, Rainey, Suero, Thompson, both, I'm wondering what you think of Jim Hickey as a pitching coach, and in particular, his suitability to coach up young guys with the tools but not the performance. What's behind the question is this. When Hickey was hired, his task was almost completely different. It was mainly to keep veteran pitchers both in the rotation and the bullpen on track. Now the task is to mold a group of young pitchers into a solid staff, a task that is going to be even more urgent next year when Cade Cavalli makes his debut. I hasten to add that I believe that there are very few difference makers on coaching staffs. Managers are critical in leading and setting the tone, but the pitching and batting coaches rarely make a difference except at the margins. The players have to own 
their performance still is Hickey, the right pitching coach for the Nats for the coming seasons. I think that's an interesting point. The task very clearly has changed. And like we have said, there is not a recent track record of this organization developing pitchers. Uh, I don't know. What do you think about Hickey? Could his job be in trouble come the end of the season? He's a Davey Martinez guy. We know that. It's it's hard to see him being let go after one year. But then again, if Mike tells Davey Hickey's got to go, then Hickey's got to go. Well, so I, I think he raises a good point here, which is that the task changed dramatically. He's hired to be there for Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg, Patrick Corbin, Brad Hand, Daniel Hudson, John Lester. I mean, these are guys who don't need a whole lot of hardcore coaching. They just need a voice, a set of eyes who can pick up on some things that they're doing and and help guide them through that. But most of those guys all know what they're doing and don't really need to learn how to be big league pitchers. All of a sudden, it's a lot of guys who are learning how to be big league pitchers and are learning it on the fly at this level. And that's a tough spot to be in. And it is a different kind of coaching. And so I would say that while in general, I agree that the pitching and the hitting coaches don't mean nearly as much as we tend to think they mean, on a younger team, an inexperienced team where you are putting guys up here who maybe under different circumstances wouldn't be in the big leagues yet, I do think it is a little more important. And so it's a good question. I don't know the answer to it. I do know that they have gone through way too many pitching coaches over the years. It's not, the manager's thing was one thing. There, there's, they have even more pitching coaches since then. They have not done a good enough job finding the right ones there. And this is where it becomes an issue because you don't ever establish a, a routine and a, you know, what is the Nationals way? We, we used to talk about that with the Orioles for so long, the Cardinals, some of these other organizations that had a, a standard procedure all the way through your big league system down to your minor league system. The Nationals have not had that because there's been so much turnover over the years, and they've had some turnover on their minor league staffs as well. So whatever the answer here is, and I'm not going to profess to know if Jim Hickey is right for it or not, but they need to figure out who are the people, what is the plan from top to bottom in the organization, and stick with it and not keep changing course so often. If because they decide to rebuild the team, that means it's time to rebuild a coaching staff as well, that's okay. That's a fair way to approach it. If not, you say, hey, we don't want to keep turning it over and we trust that this is somebody who's close with Davey Martinez and he knows what he's doing. And Jim Hickey has a track record as a big league pitching coach for a long time with some pretty good teams. So if he is the answer, that's fine. But you got to stick with it. Pick your minor league pitching coaches and all follow the same pattern so that when they come up here, they already know what the system is and they're not having to learn how to do it up here. Yeah. And that goes back to that issue of player development. But it is interesting because you had Steve McCaddy for years, and since him, it's what? Mike Maddox, Derek Lilliquist, Paul Menhart, Jim Hickey. It's like well, every year or two, they're changing pitching coaches. And, you know, we can say that they don't matter much, but it's not like they don't matter at all. And if the messages keep changing, and, you know, more to the point, if the performances of pitchers aren't very good and guys aren't developing, then I think you have to ask those questions. So, I think it is worthwhile asking that. I do think, too, the politics are interesting because, again, Hickey is Davey's guy. So what if Rizzo were to go to Davey and say, Jim's got to go, and Davey says, no, Jim's my guy, he needs to stay? I think that could make for a potentially uh, interesting confrontation between Mike and Dave this offseason. Well, keep the feedback coming. You can always email us, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. You can send us a tale of October 2019 if you want to share what your experience was like following the Nationals en route to their World Series championship. You can record yourself in your smartphone telling that tale and then emailing the file to us. Again, the email address, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. You can tweet us as well, at Nats 
underscore chat. All Nationals radio highlights are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. And we leave you with this tale of October 2019 from the Rally Mullet in Pennsylvania. Here's a story I experienced in 2019, which made me feel that that year would be different compared to any other year. I went to a game on September 13th. It was Anthony Rendon bobblehead game. The Nats were playing the Braves. Max Scherzer was pitching versus Soroka. The Nats ultimately lost 5-0, and they did not look particularly good. But at the beginning of the game, before the game started, and the seats I had were on the first base side, and I was with the season ticket holders who had sold me the seats. So they were talking to some players that were walking by, and one of the coaches came by was Paul Menhart, and he was saying hi to them, and he started talking about how the Nats plane was delayed overnight and how the team got delayed into the D.C. airport until like 4 or 5 in the morning. And the team particularly didn't play well that night, which probably the reason why was because they didn't get any sleep. So after he had said the story, we all kind of like gave him the thumbs up and said that, you know what, everything's going to be all right and that we had got this. And so he had said thank you and appreciate it. And this is before the Nats got into the playoffs and it just seemed like at that moment, regardless of what happened, the Nats were going to be able to overcome any situation and they were going to be able to win regardless of what happened. And it turns out that's what happened. Hudson has the sign out from Gomes coming set. Looks like they want to go in. Here's the kick now. The pitch, fastball, is hit in the air to left center field. Robles calling for it. He's under and waiting, and he makes the catch! He makes the catch! Bang! Zoom down!